Welcome to KUOW Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this episode, in a sense, the history of same-sex marriage in the United States comes down to one story and a name you may not recall. James Obergefell did not want his name to be that name, in part because he knew people would mispronounce it. I'm just Jim, he told the Washington Post. I just stood up for our marriage. As a civil rights victory, the 2015 Supreme Court decision in Obergefell versus Hodges looms large, but it wasn't just about Jim. The case brought together various pleadings of injustice and discrimination in a consolidation of six lower court cases. The court's ruling, which declared that state bans on same-sex marriage were unconstitutional, represents an extraordinary turning point in the struggle for gay rights. The story of how that moment came to pass is complex, informative, and personal. Prior to Obergefell, a tide had begun to turn. Laws, court rulings, and voter initiatives had established same-sex marriage in 36 states. Many of us knew legally married same-sex couples, but in states with bans, such marriages were not recognized. In 2013, James Obergefell and his husband, John Arthur, traveled to Maryland to get married. Mr. Arthur was terminally ill with ALS. He passed away the same year. Back in Ohio, Jim sought to have the state registrar identify him as the surviving spouse on John's death certificate. The local registrar agreed that discriminating against the couple was unconstitutional but the state attorney general's office made plans to defend Ohio's same-sex marriage ban. The rest and the myriad of other stories that make up the struggle for gay marriage is, as they say, history. It has been just over six years since the Obergefell ruling. In his new exhaustively researched book, The Engagement, America's quarter-century struggle over same-sex marriage. Author Sasha Isenberg shares many of the stories and successful strategies that led to marriage equality. Sasha Isenberg is the Washington correspondent at Monocle, and he teaches in the political science department at UCLA. He is interviewed here by journalist Aditi Roy. Town Hall Seattle presented this conversation on June 15th. How did you settle upon, you know, this topic? And what's interesting is that you didn't just decide to write a book about um, the gay civil rights movement. It was very specifically about the chronically same-sex marriage and that journey. Yeah. So, you know, I had this, uh, the idea sort of came to me about a decade ago. So Mm -hmm. in 2011, I was working on one of the books about basically the science of political campaigns. And so I was spending a lot of time that year talking to pollsters or people who studied political attitudes in, in some form or another. And, and they would over and over again, make a version of the same observation to me, which is that they had never seen opinion 
on a single issue move um, as quickly as it had uh, towards support for same-sex marriage. And nobody had a really good explanation for, for what had happened there. And I, that sort of stuck in my mind because it was around 2011 that I sort of became aware that, that people were, start, were beginning to talk about uh, marriage as the defining civil rights movement of our time. You know, it wasn't, we weren't, nobody, I think, thought that we were four years away from a national, yeah. from this becoming the law of the land. But people, I think, saw um, that support for gay marriage had turned a corner. Where it was close to fifty percent at that point of the population supported it. That that um, that that the pro gay marriage side was sort of ascendant and, and likely to win. And and one and I, I'd covered politics through most of the time that this was a major issue in the United States. I'd been alive through the entire life of this issue. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I had no idea where this issue would sort of come from. I, I knew, I, I recall the extent to which it, it sort of dominated political debates for, for years. And I, I didn't know where it come from. I didn't know, we didn't have a sort of public language for, we were talking about this as this defining civil rights movement. And yet I didn't know who the Rosa Parks of this movement was. I didn't know, you know, mm-hmm. what the sort of landmark moments were. And nobody had written an account that, that, um, that stitched it together. And so my goal was to sort of write a comprehensive political and legal history of the whole arc of, of this thing. And one of the things that ends up happening is that in that you know I didn't expect that that in the time I was writing it that yeah. it would end up you know going to the Supreme Court let alone be being resolved at the Supreme Court and so that, I mean that's what's amazing of, yeah so so it ends up really being a kind of complete chronicle of the life of an issue and uh, th- thank goodness you didn't write it earlier than you did because you would have <laughs> had yes. it would have been a uh, pretty much outdated in a nanosecond right um but you initially set out to, like you said, like kind of chronicle it and, and find the Rosa Parks and whatnot. But, but I mean, did it surprise you how quickly things moved? Even, I mean, we talk about it being a 25 year arc between 1990 and 2015, but look at those last even five years, right? Leading up to yeah. it. Yeah. So I think there's a real, I think it's sort of hard for us to remember um, the extent to which this was uncertain for a long time, you know, so Massachusetts um, becomes the first place in the United States to to marry, legally marry same-sex couples in 2004. The next state to do it is California in 2008. It gets taken away California in California by Proposition 8 six months later. There was a real question at that point whether Massachusetts would remain the only state in the country that, that, had legal same-sex marriage for a long time. There was an active effort to pass a constitutional amendment that would have basically overridden the court order that brought same-sex marriage to Massachusetts. And I think that, you know, there's a real fear among activists during those years, 2004, 5, 6, 7, people who are invested in marriage, that if a constitutional amendment passes and this gets sort of taken away through the political process, you know, I think we might be looking back at that Maybe the way we look at Reconstruction now is this sort of brief flowering of new rights and freedoms and liberties that got taken away by a political backlash. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, I think it, it seemed uh, when I had this idea in 2011, you know, I think six, seven states had, had, had legalized same-sex marriage at that point. You know, and I think it seemed very possible that we could end up in a situation where, you know, the number 
incrementally grew every few years, but, um, you know, maybe we get to someplace sort of like where we are at the death penalty, which was for many years in the 1990s, the most divisive social issue in the country. And we are in a place where roughly half the states have the death penalty now, roughly half the states don't have the death penalty. Every few years, one state moves from one column to another um, because of local factors. But like politicians don't get asked about it anymore. We don't fight about it. And I think there was a possibility we could end up in a place where, you know, same-sex marriage was a sort of remained a state level issue and, and we had a, a, a weird patchwork. Um, the idea that um, this would resolve itself um, with a national solution on that timeline astounded everybody who was involved in it. I, I detail in the book a strategy session in the spring of 2005 in Jersey City, New Jersey of, of all places, um, where a group of, uh, it's about 10 top litigators and activists from parts of the gay rights movement come together to develop the first national strategy to win gay marriage nationwide. Um, and they set a deadline, you know, and this is seen as already sort of optimistic within the movement because at this point, one state has same-sex marriage and they've just lost 13 uh, state constitutional amendments in 2004. So the idea of like laying out a goal when you're going to win this nation coast to coast is pretty audacious. And the date they said is 2025. Wow. So, you know, like th this... I was shocked that it moved as quickly as I did once I started working on it. And more to a point, everybody on, 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 you know, on all sides of this issue who were paying very close attention to it was, were stunned too. And it's amazing. So Washington state, I know um, we, our friends listening in Washington right now uh, also played a role in the journey. And another thing that I think was really interesting, one of your, uh, one premise that you have is that it was the reason it happened so fast or part of the reason yeah, that it was catapulted kind of to the national spotlight uh, is that there was a symbiotic relationship between the people at the center of the movement, the advocates, but and then also their opponents, that the opponents had such a strong reaction. It actually helped to unify um, the people in the, the movement because there's all these kind of issue they were arguing about which issues should be, you know, uh, preeminent, right? Uh, yeah. Can you kind of explain that a little bit more? Yeah. So, you know, so the book basically starts in, in Hawaii in 1990, where uh, uh, basically a, a PR stunt sort of spirals out of control by a local activist. And it leads to a decision by the Hawaii Supreme Court in the spring of 1993, um, where the court becomes the first, the first court on earth to, uh, rule that the fundamental right to marriage guaranteed by the state constitution uh, can extend to same-sex couples. Uh, and that's when basically gay marriage becomes a political issue in the way that we, we think of it and a real viable legal objective, um, not just in Hawaii, but potentially for uh, plaintiffs who would sue in other, in other jurisdictions. There's some history before it's not like nobody had talked about gay marriage before 1990, but the people who were talking about it uh, in the 1980s were overwhelmingly uh, gay lawyers and legal theorists who were debating this at the level of abstraction. There were no active court cases. There was no legislative activity. No gay rights organization in the United States had, had endorsed marriage as an objective. Um, and so these debates played out um, 
there's a real divide. And it, some of it was strategic and tactical. Like, should we, marriage is this huge reach. There are these incremental things that are, that are you know, seem more plausible in the short term. Why don't we go for those first? But there's also a real ideological divide. And, you know, on one hand, you had people who argued that, uh, you know, if, if gays and lesbians are ever going to reach full citizenship in, in, uh, in the United States or in their particular state, having the right to, to marry their partner is, is a fundamental part of citizenship and, and um, that that's sort of non-negotiable as an objective. On the other hand, you had two separate factions sort of connected, but one was folks who'd been shaped by sort of the gay liberationist movement of the uh, post Stonewall, uh, who believed that, um, you know, would argue something along the lines of gays and lesbians had succeeded in creating their own sexual values and mores that were not just distinct from, but in many ways opposed to the, the, traditional institutions of, of mainstream heterosexual American life. Uh, paraphrasing slightly, you know, there's one, one argument that was, you know, we basically we've cast off the, um, our parents, you know, approach to, to sex and love. Why would we aspire to inclusion into mm-hmm. their, you know, the, the, the world of their lily white suburbs and, and, and yeah. picket fences. Um, and so, you know, then the other sort of faction was shaped very much on gender lines. You know, that, that to the extent that anybody did LGBT family law, as we would now call it, in the 1980s, it was women. It was female lawyers representing female clients who were overwhelmingly women who had been in heterosexual marriages, had had uh, uh, a child with their husband, um, came out as lesbian, got divorced, and then had to go to court to fight for the right to their own children. And their lawyers, um, uh, almost all lesbian women, had been sh- had gone to college and law school in the 60s and 70s. They'd been shaped by sort of second wave feminists thinking about marriage as an institution that had been created and existed solely to subjugate women. And their argument was, why would we as lesbians aspire to inclusion in an institution that is patriarchal by its very nature and... Um, uh, and so these were like active theoretical debates that took place throughout the 1980s. And there was no consensus whatsoever within the kind of gay legal community, gay intellectual spheres about how to weigh these different priorities. What changes immediately is that court decision in Hawaii in 1993 starts to mobilize religious conservatives to take seriously the threat that, that gays and lesbians will be able to soon marry in Hawaii. The first institution to do so is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, which invests significantly, not just in Utah to change its laws, but to, you know, sets up basically a, a front organization to try to pass a constitutional amendment in Hawaii. And then eventually and works with the Catholic Church and then eventually evangelical fundamentalist Protestants get involved, too. And that's how we get the Defense of Marriage Act. You know, in 1996, Republicans in Congress are introducing the Defense of Marriage Act to basically insulate the other 49 states and the federal government from having to recognize gay marriages that come out of Hawaii. And what happens at that moment is all basically all the internal divides within the gay and lesbian community just fall away. And I quote uh, Paula Edelbrick, who was a, uh, an attorney who was, you know, probably the most vocal 
kind of feminist critic of marriage during those debates in the 80s. And she says, you know, the world is blowing up over our relationships. Um, of course, I'm going to fight for them. And it was, mm-hmm. as you suggest, you know, in t- it, it, if had opponents not put stopping gays and lesbians from marrying at the top of their agenda, the gay community would have remained fractured over whether it was even worth fighting for. Yeah, here in such an irony there. So far, you've been talking about the ideology, right, and strategy, which of course is important, but all of it had to be fueled by money uh, in order for 2000 to get to 2015. Tell us, and it's interesting, when you're talking about money, uh, that brings us to kind of a fundamental difference between this movement and previous civil rights movements, such as the fight for racial justice or gender equity with the distribution. Yeah, you know, this is one of the things that, you know, that, 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 so I write about a sort of cluster of of, uh, gay male, almost entirely male donors who emerge, um, really come together in the early 2000s and bankroll that strategy session I mentioned in Jersey City, Uh, a lot of activist efforts and help by dint of the amount of money, um, you know, well over, over $500 million probably spent total um, on these causes Uh, there. They help move marriage to the top of the agenda uh, within the community. And that um, part of the question was how do these, where do these donors come from? And, how do they get their money? Right. Because they become such huge drivers in the political, you know, organizations that do advocacy or litigation, all of a sudden start kind of catering what they're working on because Mm -hmm. of the influence of donors. And so who are they? A couple of them are get their money from tech. Uh, uh, Tim Gill's the most prominent. He's the founder of Quark, um, uh, which is the desktop publishing software company um, made, uh, a significant amount of money as a founder of the software company sold it. David Bonet had founded or, or was invo- involved early in GeoCities, the website provider, um, also cashed out in the late 90s, um, two gay men who started spending money. But several of these folks um, were heirs to uh, Fred Hochberg, uh, uh, was from the Lillian Vernon uh, uh, mail order catalog fame, Henry von Emmeringen's family. Um, was an old chemical, uh, they, they made chemicals. Um, uh, <laughs> and Hormel, I think, right? And, 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 and Jim Hormel, oh. yeah, um, uh, in, in uh, San Francisco. Um, and so one of the things that's really interesting is these, these folks who inherited their money, gays and lesbians who inherited it from presumably mm-hmm. straight parents, um, mm-hmm. that's like a natural form of redistribution and, you know, one of the major struggles when you look back to the civil rights movement for, for, for racial equality was the difficult work that folks like Martin Luther King Jr. had to do to get northern, uh, wealthy northern people, you know, Rockefeller, probably most prominent among them, to help fund civil rights organizing in the South because the nature of inequality in the South meant that you did not yeah. have many black millionaires in those communities and you had to sort of expand your coalition had to expand to include financing. Like, you know, the, the women who were, you know, aiming to get suffrage in the 19, uh, you know, uh, uh, in the late 19th century, first they had to win property rights. Yeah. So I mean, they, that's a thing. That's yeah, the whole so there's like, of it. 
So there's no wealth already in the community on which yeah. to, 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 to fund your activism. And there sort of was. And, and, and this becomes, I think, a sort of recurring meta theme that we might not think enough about, um, which is that the presumably random distribution of sexual minorities in the population ends up being a kind of agent of progressive change just by sort of biological distribution. Sure, because you need to fuel it by not just a bunch of people who happen to have a lot of money. I mean, you need huge amounts of money, the kind that that family wealth in this country brings, like you mentioned. You mentioned Tim Gill. He is an interesting guy. I mean, this is like a software tycoon, right? Who, I mean, he's an engineer by trade, um, not some huge political operative. First of all, yeah, how does a guy like that um, get that involved in the cause and just get so emboldened? What brought him to it? Yeah, Besides so it was, the personal reason. So he'd found a quark in 19, I believe, 1981. And by 1992, it's a significant um, player, certainly in the publishing industry. You know, major magazines are, are being published off of Quark Express, stuff like that. Uh, you know, the whole graphic design industry is sort of relying on it. And in 1992, um, uh, Colorado approves an amendment to the state constitution that basically undoes local gay rights ordinances in a few of its most liberal cities and towns, including Denver. And at that point, um, Gil, is, his, his company is headquartered uh, there, and he um, uh, he sees uh, an employee who has a sticker supporting this amendment on his desk. And, you know, I don't think being gay had been a particularly big part of his, uh, uh, certainly a part of his professional identity before this, but um, at least in his sort of retelling of it, this kind of galvanized him, which is like, you know, basically his, his disdain for what he kind of thought is the stupidity of an employee, which is like, how could you be in your workplace advertising against your own boss's basic civil rights? Um, and that, uh, that kind of pulled him into, into advocacy or, you know, philanthropy on behalf of the gay and lesbian community. Uh, in, um, and a lot of that was non-political at first. You know, one thing that, that sure. he does is he, he's also giving money to, to museums and symphonies and like just cultural mm -hmm. institutions, but he gives the money not out of his own personal name. He gives it from the whatever Gay and Lesbian Fund of Colorado, whatever it was called at the time, mm -hmm. specifically so that on museums, they would have to put on their list of donors, gay and lesbian in front of Colorado, so that when you went to the symphony and they had to say tonight's performance is, is made possible by, they'd say gay and lesbian. And it forced a lot of the boards of these, uh, you know, major cultural institutions in, in Colorado for the first time to have to reckon with the presence of gays and lesbians as an organized entity in their midst. And the way Gill recounts it ended up being a sort of driver of those companies adopting better policies for their employees because of the initial pressure of his money. And so that kind of pulls him in and, and his giving becomes more politically oriented, not, not just sort of civic minded stuff. Um, and uh, he gives some money to the campaign to beat back this constitutional amendment in um, in Hawaii. Uh, and then by by 2000, he's cashed out of Quark and he's in basically in retirement um, as a, you know, like 35 year old man or something um, and has, uh, uh, you know, a big pot of money that he's sitting on 
and is interested in um, in having a real impact on on political issues nationally related to gays and lesbians. And I think one of the things that you do so well in reading those chapters about that journey for him is just the transformation. I mean, you, you said that, you know, he was kind of a shy guy, right? Not someone you would think of as some political operative type, but I, I mean, you, he, I mean, it was very, very strategic. And you mentioned some of the boards and things that, you know, some of you know, the, the funding coming with strings attached that, okay, change your policies and make it more equitable and things like that. Um, to just really being, I mean, being able to kind of swim with the sharks, so to speak, right? Um, tell us a little you know, bit about that transformation. Yeah, and yeah. I know Ted Shrimpa, for instance, um, was someone who was kind of his foil and really, uh, he went, you know, who worked with him, um, who kind of brought him to that, that that place. Yeah, and to some extent, you know, he was a shy engineer. He remains to this day a shy engineer. He's mm-hmm. now just a shy engineer with a tremendous amount of political influence. And that is in part because he built a political operation that in certain ways embodies both his shyness and his engineering mind. Right. And so mm-hmm. I tell a story in the book about how, you know, he started giving money to political candidates in the late nineties. And at some point he, he Bill Clinton is coming to town um, for a fundraiser and Gil is, you know, given whatever the maximum is that that's allowable at that point. And he gets invited to go meet the president, get his picture taken. And he, um, doesn't want to and sends his secretary or assistant to go meet the president instead. But, but that sort of dynamic, which is that he was not giving uh, to not just not to hobnob with people, but like that so much political giving is driven by, you know, his advisors end up calling it glamor giving, that, that people mm-hmm. give money to be around politicians, to be recognized for it, to have influence, to, to um, uh, and that was never sort of part of his calculus. And what that, what that did was start to inform an operation that also kind of had an engineering mindset, which is to, to really think about the problem that they're trying to solve and then give money to uh, solve it. And so part of the problem that they saw was in these state legislatures, you know, a constant fear is mm-hmm. in the mid 2000s is that gays and lesbians can win a marriage lawsuit in court as they did in Hawaii, as they did in Vermont, as they did in Massachusetts, but that if the legislature and eventually uh, gets involved and or it goes to the ballot, um, that gays and lesbians do not have the political apparatus in these states to actually defend their legal victories through in the political sphere. And so you so, needed the legislatures. Yeah, you need the leg- And often what you needed was the legislatures to just initially just to not act. If the courts mm-hmm. were going to act, then you just need the politicians to stay out of it. But you have to convince the politicians to stay out of it. And so the first place that they try this is in Iowa. There's a case that's moving pretty quietly through the Iowa courts. And, um, uh, the court ends up ruling on it in the spring of 2009, but starting in 2006, Gill organizes a fleet of gay donors around the country to give small contributions, the maximum, they have limits on what you can spend in a state legislative race. But their idea is they want to keep a Democratic majority, but they also want to scare Democrats and Republicans mm-hmm. into, they, they want to beat a few uh, a key Republican leaders and they also want to scare people into um, understanding their power. And so um, they 
there's an amazing scene in here where uh, a Republican state legislator in uh, uh, Grinnell, Iowa, loses his seat. The guy had been a committee chair and in the leadership. He loses his seat. And after the election, a reporter calls him and says, you know that your opponent was getting money from New York and San Francisco and and Provincetown and whatever. And they, he starts looking through the disclosure report. And he's like, why are people in you know, New York and San Francisco giving multi, you know, money to my opponent? And it was because Gill had built this system that kind of looked at, at the, the challenge of campaign finance laws, which is that you couldn't just be a rich person who gave $500,000 to a state legislative candidate in Iowa, that's illegal. But sure. if you could if you could build a network where you could get a thousand gay and lesbian donors around the country to each give five hundred dollars by convincing them that this was going to advance a larger strategic interest, you could have a real impact. And he built this structure that did local politics, nationalized local politics with a sophistication. And so they were they, they had these handful of big donors, the Hormels and the Gills, who gave you know, multi-million dollar donations where they could, but then also figured out how to network small dollar don donors to have a real impact on, on states. And what happens in Iowa is the, the court rules in, in 2009. And by then the Democrats control the legislature uh, and the governorship. And they say, we're not going to do anything. It's the law of the land, which is exactly what Gil wanted. But those people had become convinced that, that um, it was a politically safe position for them to take. So it's, so it's so fascinating. Yeah. And he was uh, and they were looking at Democratic and Republicans. Right. Uh, you needed both. Um, but part of that playbook, then uh, you get to New York. Right. Which is obviously such an important state. And you kind of had to throw out that playbook. Um, in fact, there's one activist who put I want to read this. In fact, in New York, there was an incentive to keep the donors hanging and investing as long as they could before they passed a bill and national gay donors put their attention elsewhere, it was time to engage in bare knuckle politics with the single minded purpose of getting 32 senators to vote for the marriage equality bill. Um, so walk us through that. What were some of those bare knuckled uh, maneuvers that was referenced? Yeah. So one of the things that was different in New York and New York becomes the first big state to to, to pass a marriage bill, to do this through the political process, not through the courts. Um, and here they need members to act proactively, not just to sit on their hands when the court acts. And they go out to, um, in Iowa, they tried to do this stuff quietly initially because they realized one of the things that's clear in Iowa is uh, that it doesn't help if uh it would help a Republican state legislator in a rural district in Iowa if he knew going into the election, if he could say my opponent is being funded by a bunch of gays in, in L.A. And, and, and Boston. So they tried to do it discreetly at first. They bragged about it later, but they tried to do it discreetly at first. In New York, they really wanted to, to, to make an example out of people, uh, members who had stood in the way of, of a gay marriage bill. And many of these members were conservative Democrats, uh, religious Democrats, Latino, African-American uh, from from New York City, uh, who uh, the Gill forces went after with, um, uh, you know, some really delightfully vicious ads. And one of the things that they they did was, you know, they decided our goal is to defeat these people. Let them know that our hands were on it. 
but it's not going to help in a, you know, in a largely Pentecostal like Dominican district in the Bronx to run at this person as an opponent of same sex marriage. So we're going to run ads against them for, you know, there's one district in Queens where a guy had, had stolen office supplies. There's another one where uh, a a legislator was, had been charged with domestic abuse Um, and they built campaigns that were not, where the message was not about gay marriage, but they very much after the election wanted other members of the legislature to see, legislature to see that if you vote the wrong way on this, there's an outside force that will go after you in your district. It was pretty dirty. Uh, it was, it was yeah. you know, the, I mean, and it's interesting. And I know you just, you wrote an opinion piece about this. I mean, they, there was shaming, there was protests, you know, we're going to show up um, in an age when, the term cancel culture didn't exist. It almost seemed to foreshadow that, didn't it? Yeah. I mean, you know, I think that the stuff, I think some of these campaign ads were sort of, you know, in the context of elections and and people say stuff. What you did have was, uh, you know, that really starts in 2008 around Prop 8 in California. It was a real push, I think, towards um, boycotts and online shaming campaigns that uh, in in a coordinated fashion, None of it, you know, some of it often dismissed by major figures in the gay rights movement is like not not our doing. But I, I tell the story of a guy named Fred Carger, who is a Republican political consultant in um, California, who uh, Proposition 8 is the constitutional amendment that goes to the ballot in California in November 2008 to um, make same sex marriage illegal five months after couples have started marrying in California uh, due to a court order. And Carger goes through the disclosure reports and finds not just the biggest donors to the the Prop 8 cause, he finds people who have public-facing interests. Basically, they have businesses or public reputations that he thinks are susceptible to pressure. And so the first one he goes after is this guy, Doug Manchester, who's a major developer in San Diego, and he starts a boycott of uh, two of, of man, uh, Carger starts a boycott of two of Manchester's resort properties. Um, uh, within a couple of years, you know, he gets, and eventually he gets not just individuals to cancel, but major trade associations and, and professional conferences to pull out of these facilities. Manchester ends up having to sell the, the, his marquee property in downtown, a Grand Hyatt hotel in downtown, um, uh, San Diego. Cause, cause the pressure's gotten so bad. Uh, and by 2012, this example, and then and then Cargill starts going doing this around the country. He goes, he finds out-of-state donors that have given to, to, to the California campaign and, you know, publicizes in their markets, goes to local media in Pennsylvania and Michigan and says, do you know that you have a, uh, you know, a big anti-gay donor in your community and gets it written about in, in the, and by 2012, when Washington state and three other states have marriage on the ballot, what you see is that some of the biggest donors to these anti-gay marriage campaigns that had been funding them in 2004 and 2008, 2009, disappear. They got out of the game. And I quote Frank Schubert, who was the chief strategist on all those campaigns, saying mm-hmm. it became really difficult for them to raise money because people were so concerned that their name would be on a disclosure report and that they would be um, uh, uh you know, subject of boycotts or just subject of sort of online shaming. And, what, and part of the story is how, look, boycotts are nothing new. 
we've sure. had boycotts, including related to gay rights issues for decades. But the internet really lowered the barriers to mm-hmm. launching and promoting a boycott. And if you go back just a few years earlier, you needed a national organization to coordinate a boycott. You needed national media coverage of the boycott to bring other people into following it. And that was tough. That that yeah. required, you know, and the old phone tree or something. Yeah. Right? I mean, it's, yeah. you know, and what exactly. Fred Carter sort of figures out by the summer of 2008 is. You know, he's like announcing stuff on his blog and he's getting a few people to show a few, you know, not a few people, like a few dozen people to show up to his first event in in San Diego and getting some media coverage and going and using online networks to drive attention to that. And then one of the first big breakthroughs he has is uh, some ally of his is a is a like has basic coding skills and takes the disclosure, the pro the prop eight donor reports finds every name and address of somebody who's over $500, puts it onto, layers it onto a Google map and they create this Prop 8 maps. And now it's possible for anybody in California to look up which of your neighbors gave money to Prop 8. And, um, you know, that is just something that's sort of unimaginable without, you know, sort of online networks to to disseminate it. And it really changes, you know, what, what happens from 2008 to 2012 as these anti-gay marriage donors sort of flee the scene is what had been a resource imbalance that they had in almost every election, every place where this had been on the ballot, um, gay marriage opponents had, had gone, come into the fight with more money than gay marriage supporters. And by 2012, it's absolutely lopsided. You know, yeah. in Seattle, for example, the amount of advertising on TV is like two to one, uh, three to one in favor of, of the gay marriage side of the debate that fall. And that really has a huge impact on, 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 um, on the ability of gay marriage supporters to ultimately sweep all four of those ballot measures. And I would think that that strategy of looking through the disclosures and, and organizing some of the boycotts and whatnot, that that probably created a whole new playbook, not just for other civil rights movements, but for just, you know, uh, other political causes, I would think, right? Is that yeah, something yeah, much I mean, more common? Yeah, what, I mean, what I w- wanted to show was, and, and this is, as you mentioned, yeah, I wrote a, uh, an essay in the, the ran the New York Times a couple a week or so ago about this, is... Um, Often, I think in this sort of debate over cancel culture, like whatever that means, actually, um, we often end up, I think, debating the propriety of it or like, is this an appropriate tactic in a liberal democracy? And, you know, is this fair? Um, and I sort of want to just put that aside for a second because I don't really have strong feelings on it. But what I wanted to show is that as a tactic and a broader strategy, it works. And I think too often we're having these conversations um, that are detached from seeing it as a tactic. And, and the gay marriage story is a real illustration that if you deploy this in the context of a broader fight and um, that it can, it can be a driver of creating, you know, that, that it's, it is as almost as useful for you as a, as a political activist to drive a dollar away from your opponents than it is to raise a dollar on your own. And we talk a lot about what people do Mm -hmm. to raise money. And I don't think we talk enough about the effect of boycott and shaming as a way of, of, you know, creating another dollar's financial advantage, but just by taking it away from your opponent. 
great. Uh, and we want to remind people that they can ask questions uh, and we will get to the questions. I wanted to really touch quickly, touch upon some other names that were really important names in terms of uh, the funding part of it. Um, Paul Singer from Elliott Management, huge hedge fund guy. Again, uh, someone kind of surprised me to see that name. Jeff Bezos, we saw Brad Pitt. As we saw more, as you mentioned, there was an inflection point when we saw just mainstream money uh, coming into the cause. Um, tell us about how some of those names came into this and, and decided that they wanted to put money uh, yeah. into so this. I think that's a big, a big cultural shift that happens between 2008 and 2012 is this becomes a cause that you know, primarily the big donations have been from gay donors, established donors to gay rights causes um, uh, up till 2008 or so. And, and afterwards, what changes is this becomes, I think, a sort of mainstream cause for progressive donors. You know, Mike Bloomberg starts becoming a big d donor to gay marriage causes. Brad Pitt, as you know, as you note, um, uh, uh, Jeff Bezos and, and Mackenzie uh, and Bezos, I guess, um, give $2.5 million to the Washington state ballot measure. It's a, one of the largest mm -hmm. political contributions in American history at that point. Um, wow. Paul Singer is really illustrative. So Paul Singer is a major Republican donor who runs a hedge fund in, in Manhattan. Mm -hmm. um, uh, he is a kind of like Paul Ryan, very close to Paul Ryan, sort of, you know, conventional uh, uh, pre-Trump conservative down the line on every single issue, except he becomes in uh, uh, 2009, a donor to gay marriage causes. And the story of how that happens is pretty simple, which is he finds out his son is gay or one of his sons is gay. And all of a sudden this becomes a personal issue to him. And so not only does he start giving generously in New York to the legislative uh, lobbying campaign we just talked about, but they use him to talk to elected Republicans who know what a big donor he is to Republican causes to basically say, Singer sits down with, with Republicans and says, if you vote the right way on this, I will have your back. And that means wow. going to other Wall Street donors, conservative donors, um, and enlisting them in the fight too. And I think that, you know, a, a, this sort of illustrates a couple of shifts. One, how important people having gay relatives, especially children, um, was to kind of political influence. You know, you see in, in the book, Paul Singer's sort of transformation. You see then, you know, a couple of years later, Rob Portman, the senator from Ohio, who becomes the first sort of nationally prominent Republican official to support same-sex marriage. And his story is very similar. He had a college-age son who came out as gay, and it sort of transformed his view on the matter um, you know, you go back a little earlier, Dick Cheney had a slightly different position on, on same-sex marriage, but, you know, he was not opposed to it. And that comes from having an openly lesbian daughter. And so, you know, we see this from elites that elected officials, donors, all of a sudden become invested in this issue when it becomes personal to them. But we also see this play out in the broader population. You know, part of the story here is that support for same-sex marriage goes from 27% in, in 1996 when Gallup asks about it for the first time to just last week, it was at 70%. Wow. Where's that movement coming from? The biggest predictor we've seen of support for any number of gay rights causes, not just marriage, is how somebody answers the question, do you know, do you have a friend, family member, coworker who's, who's openly gay or lesbian? And um, 
this gets back to sort of what you asked before about about the redistribution is that Mm -hmm. people are coming out and you know, I'm going to presume that the percentage of the population that's that's gay or lesbian is the same now that it was in 1996 or as it was mm-hmm. in 1980. Um, but more people are out and thus more people know a gay person. And that that is a dry. and they're out younger as well. No, not I, young, my yeah. daughter's my daughter's pediatrician talks that he's about the same age as I am in his mid 40s. And, you know, talking about how for his entire childhood and being a teenager, he was prom king and, you know, went to prom, had a girlfriend, all these things and how this entire, entire, uh, not just childhood, but through his teenage years, through high school, lived with this secret inside him. He didn't come out to anyone uh, until much later as an adult. And you're seeing it so much younger now. Um, And that, and that, and that enlists families as, you know, political actors in it and, some families have the capability of giving million dollars to a cause and other families just become voters or get reflected in poll data on this, but, but it ends up being a real engine of progressive change. Sure. And when you're looking to the future now, you know, one of the things you talked about is that prior to everyone kind of being unifying around same sex marriage, there was a lot of fragmentation in the community looking forward now that, the same-sex marriage chapter is, you know, resolved. Are did that give momentum to other things? Is there still that fragmentation um, when you're looking at other other causes? And I'm going to go to the chat because there was a question that was related to that that I'm going to get to. Um, in terms of backlash to social movements, what have you seen as a major backlash against gay rights? Is there a concerted effort to repeal same-sex marriage rights? I don't feel like I hear about that at all. Um, and then I'll get to a question after that about trans rights as well. So yeah, I think these are one. all, these are all sort of linked. So, you know, I think that the, um, uh, there has been less backlash to the actual Obergefell decision, um, in 2015 than I had expected when I was out reporting this. I, you know, I, I, I may have overlearned the lessons of, of Brown v. Board or Roe v. Wade and assumed as many, scholars have documented that often landmark liberal or civil rights opinions end up producing a, a conservative backlash. Um, there wasn't, uh, you know, I think there are a few reasons for that. One, the people who lost were on the losing side. No Bergefell knew that they were going to be on the losing side um, going into it. And so that was a, like, if, if you could take yourself back to June, 2015, it was a monumental day, a major opinion, but like there was not a lot of suspense about it. It was totally foreordained, I think, how the court would go for a variety of reasons. And that meant that even before they had lost, uh, same-sex marriage opponents were resigned to their defeat and they sort of pivot into two directions. One is, um, you know, the, the, and, and uh, uh one is that they turn towards trans issues, um, you know, which is a lot of the apparatus that had been sort of developed and funded to fight same-sex marriage ends up sort of being just redirected to a, to an adjacent issue where public opinion is still on the side of religious conservatives. Um, so that's one thing. Um, and that happens like quickly. Uh, and it's not a coincidence that you haven't heard much about marriage in six years, and you've heard a whole lot more about political issues related to transgender uh, mm-hmm. uh, people and, and gender identity more generally. The other thing that happens is they 
turn towards religious liberty, religious freedom exemptions, many related to marriage, but fundamentally the dynamic shifts. And there, you know, the, the, it is not a coincidence that the, you know, most significant early religious right organization, Jerry Falwell's group is called the moral majority. One of the sort of central tenets of religious conservative politics in the late 1970s, 80s, 90s, 2000s is the idea that the United States is a Christian is a majority Christian country. And as a result, laws should reflect Judeo-Christian values. You heard this time and time again from activists, from politicians. Um, Starting about a decade ago, and you could turn on Fox News right now and, you know, watch. I'm glad you guys are watching this and, instead of Fox. But if you if you tuned in, you'd see that the language changes. It's no more. We we are the majority and the law should reflect our values. It is conservatives, especially conservatives of faith, are a, a minority under siege from Hollywood, academia, the courts, big tech, whatever it may be. Um, and the fight for religious liberty exemptions is basically saying we are a, a besieged minority that cannot get our way through the political process because it is fundamentally disadvantaged against us. And so we need the protection of the courts to shelter ourselves from laws that um, go contrary to our values. And folks may remember a case that went up to the Supreme Court a couple of years ago that was a, a a baker in Colorado who um, didn't want to bake a wedding cake for a, a same-sex mm-hmm. uh, wedding because he said it violated his his beliefs. There's now a case that the Supreme Court will likely rule on in the next two weeks that is a social service agency in Philadelphia that um, refuses to place children uh, with same uh, foster children, pardon me, with same-sex couples because um, uh, mm-hmm. it's a violation of, of church teaching. Uh, and so this is sort of where I think we are seeing the, I, I think of it as, I don't think of it really as backlash. I think of it as a kind of defensive posture from the people who lost, but this is where we're going to see this fight play out in, in coming years, I think is uh, religious conservatives testing how far courts and maybe legislatures will go in protecting private actors from having to recognize marriages that they don't, uh, that go contrary to their religious beliefs. And so I would sort of, we're not going to, I I don't know anybody who thinks we're going to see an effort like we do with Roe v. Wade to try to undo the central holding of Obergefell, which is that the the fundamental right to marriage extends to same-sex couples. What we could see are cases where like, you know, what if an employer says um, that either their owners or shareholders or board have deeply held religious views that um, that lead them to decide that they're going to give dental coverage to the opposite sex spouses of their employees, but not to mm-hmm. same sex spouses of their employees. Or you can get maternity leave if you're the husband of uh, uh, an employee who is, or sorry, you know, if uh, the, the, the spouses of say opposite sex spouses of employees are qualified for medical or, or maternity leave, um, but not same sex couples. And, and would the court recognize that as um, a type of religious liberty exemption to marriage? And could we end up in a place where everybody's entitled to get married under the law, but we have lots of carve outs for private actors to say, I want to treat different types of married people differently. You mentioned that we're hearing more about trans rights, and there's a question uh, about that. Are trans rights going to be harder to get 
because there isn't a lot of money behind it? Or do you think the social resistance to trans people is stronger? I think we're, I, I have no reason to think that there won't be money behind it eventually. Um, I think we are in early days of what will be a long fight over trans issues in this country. And, you know, long by, I, I should say, you know, like, so my book covers a 25 year arc on marriage, which is short in the scheme of civil rights movements, short by the measure of the time it took for women to get the vote from when that campaign started, short in the time it took to desegregate schools and housing from the time those movements started, um, long in the lives of people who feel that they're, you know, rights and ability to live freely are, are being um, denied. Uh, but I suspect that we probably are in the first part of a decade or two of sort of dealing with with trans issues as a, as a major cultural sticking point. Um, and I, uh, I have every reason, you know, I, I think that there's a kind of question, I think now there's maybe not as much money, but one thing that has happened is you know, I think as our parties have gotten polarized, um, you know, what you see in the book, I spent a lot of time writing about how Bill Clinton and then later Barack Obama dealt with, you know, very gingerly with gay marriage as it kind of came to their desks as, as presidents. Um, uh, and some of that was that our parties were really messy and that you still had conservative Democrats and, and moderate Republicans. And, and it was, you know, being, um, sort of unabashedly pro-gay and, and both Clinton and Obama defined themselves as gay, you know, as, as sort of pro-gay rights candidates, but that there was only so far that they were willing to go out of a sort of concern that you could be seen as going too far left to, to, sure. to win a majority. One thing that's happened is our parties have gotten polarized is Joe Biden, you know, ran for president uh, talking about trans issues in a way that you know, analogously is very different from how other folks uh, would have run around on gay and lesbian issues in, over the last few decades. He says, you know, to, to, to transgender children, you know, know your president has your back. Um, there's a sense that his administration will see on actual policy things, but mm -hmm. that the Democratic coalition is all in on, on uh, that there's not a lot of ambivalence about taking a strong stand in defense of transgender rights. And I assume that that ends up leading to this being a cause that progressive donors eventually will get behind. Um, I think this, you know, and I presume that some part of the same dynamic that we talked about with Paul Singer, mm -hmm. you know, that there are going to be wealthy people who have trans kids. You know, we have members of Congress now who have, who have trans kids. I, I, the, the, um, you know, and, and I think one question is the extent to which solidarity among different types of sexual minorities kind of holds. Do, do you know, the percentage of people who now say that they know somebody who's gay and lesbian uh, is, is obviously much higher than the percentage of people who say that they know somebody who identifies as transgender. Is that, you know, does goodwill and acceptance sort of transfer to, 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 to other sexual minority groups? I feel like you already have a, a sequel to this book, per, perhaps in the work. So maybe, uh, I don't know, five, 10, who knows how long it'll take. Uh, we'll see another one. Um, thanks. On that note, it's a good time to, to end this. Um, thank you so much, Sasha. This has been so much fun and, and so enlightening. And I hope everyone will 
will buy this book because um, it is a really wonderful read. And if you buy it, it comes with the cover too. So. Yes, I'm sorry. The beautiful, I, I, as I said, I had to take it off because I have two, uh, a toddler and uh, a seven-year-old. And so I wanted to preserve the beauty and the <laughs> integrity <you>. of that. <laughs> so. Thank you so much, Aditi, for doing this. I really appreciate it. This was great. Thanks, Sasha. Town Hall Seattle presented this conversation with Sasha Isenberg on June 15th. To find the full event and other great Seattle area talks, go to our website, kuow.org speakers. While you're there, subscribe to our podcast and share your comments. Thank you for listening. Tune in again soon.